Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I'm John Fugelsang. Welcome to Sirius XM Progress. We have a great show tonight with some great guests. Professor Corey Brettschneider will be here. It's been a rather busy week in the Supreme Court. Don't know if you're paying much attention to Moore v. Harper, but uh, it threatens to end democracy as we know it. And it's starting to look like it could be nine to nothing. It's starting to look like the conservatives, or at least the conservative majority of the conservatives, because that's a thing, might save democracy this week. We'll be talking all about that. And then uh, Dr. Stephen Bezrushka is going to join us. His new book is called Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. You know, in the 1950s, life expectancy in the U.S. was within the top five or ten healthiest countries in the world. And then other countries began surpassing us. And by 1970, the U.S. ranked number 17th. By the 90s, we had dropped to number 22. And more recent data has the U.S. ranked as 44th the 44th healthiest country in the world. Did the quality of our medicine and doctors go down or has the inequality gone up? It's an amazing book. Uh, We're really happy to have him with us. We are at 866-997-4748. Chris Hauselt is our executive producer. The great Thea Harper is our associate producer. They are working here from uh, South Carolina and from Brooklyn, and it's going to be a fun night this evening. By the way, if you didn't see our special yet, our midterm comedy show featuring Rob Reiner and Stephanie Miller, Hal Sparks, Frangela, myself, you can go to meathook.live, and it is the Stephanie Miller Sexy Liberal Save Democracy Tour recorded last month in Los Angeles. It's really fun. It's a great comedy special. And, um, you know, let's appreciate some Herschel Walker jokes one last time, shall we? Let's get to it. we got a big show coming tonight and a lot to get to. So we're going to talk about Brittany Griner tonight. And um, waking up to good news doesn't happen too often in the 21st century. Brittany Griner is coming home after 10 months in a Russian gulag. And it shouldn't be political. It shouldn't be controversial. It's one of the most inspiring ways to end this year. It's really a story to make anybody feel patriotic and feel grateful at Christmas time. Early this morning, President Joe Biden announced the release of Brittany Griner from a Russian prison camp. Well, good morning, folks, and it is a good morning. Moments ago, standing together with her wife, Sherelle, uh, in the Oval Office, I spoke with Brittany Griner. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, 
Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. This is a day we've worked toward for a long time. We never stopped pushing for her release. It took painstaking and intense negotiations, and I want to thank all the hardworking public servants across my administration who worked tirelessly to secure her release. I also want to thank the UAE for helping us facilitate Brittany's return, because that's where she landed. So let's talk about Bo Bergdahl for just a second, because I thought everybody would be excited about this. I thought this is a real victory. I mean, think about what they pulled off here. Joe Biden got Russia to release this high profile American while Joe Biden is funding the Ukraine military that is kicking Russia's ass on the battlefield. How how what kind of feat of diplomacy did they do to make this happen? Well, let's talk about Bo Bergdahl for a second. Because a lot of our right-wing friends were very angry. And most of them were the same people who were angry about Bo Bergdahl twice. Let's go into hypocrisy corner, shall we? Do you guys remember Bo Bergdahl? He's a U.S. Army soldier. He was held captive from 2009 to 2014 by this uh, network in Afghanistan that's aligned with the Taliban. Now, when he was first held captive, I mean, he was there for five years. And the right wing went after Barack Obama every day for not bringing him home, for leaving an American soldier to rot. Barack Obama was personally responsible for letting Bo Bergdahl waste away in some Taliban prison camp. You remember. Think back. I mean, Hannity had a field day with it. But then, then, the entire right wing narrative changed. Later, we found out that Bo Bergdahl was captured because he had deserted his post on the 30th of June, 2009. And uh, that led to a lot of media scrutiny. But once they found out Bo Bergdahl was a deserter, well, suddenly when Barack Obama got him freed on May 31st, 2014, it was an outrage. The same people who had spent years on social media and Fox News attacking Barack Obama for letting Bo Bergdahl fester were furious at... Barack Obama for bringing this deserter home. And why? Why? Because Bo Bergdahl came home eight years ago as part of a prisoner exchange for five high-ranking Taliban members who were being held at the detention center, or if you will, concentration camp of Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> These were prisoners that were already set for release. And he traded them for Bo Bergdahl because America doesn't leave soldiers behind. Right? Right? He was returned and he was court-martialed. And my God, they went after him so hard. And, and Obama supported his court-martial. We, we brought him home. We traded these guys because we don't leave an American behind. You right-wingers, you, you made us watch Rambo First Blood so many times. That's exactly the plot. You don't leave Americans behind. The people who were furious that troops died looking for Bo Bergdahl when he was missing, they never minded that 5,000 troops died looking for WMDs. Obama got Bo Bergdahl home because real Americans aren't total schmucks and we don't leave Americans behind. And Bo Bergdahl was promptly and nonviolently court-martialed and convicted because that's what civilized societies do. So let's skip forward eight years to today. Brittany Griner is finally free after 10 months, almost 10 months, in a Russian prison. Joe Biden said she'll soon be back in the arms of her loved ones. She should have been there all along. Now, it's remarkable and it's incredibly positive. After these long negotiations, Joe Biden finally signed off on a deal over the last week. And it's a deal that, of course, as the same people who were angry twice at Barack Obama are really angry 
at Joe Biden. First off, um, they hate Brittany Griner because she hates America, you know, because she protests racism. And that seems to upset people who don't think Donald Trump is racist. So they're furious about that. And now they're more furious that in exchange for Russia sending Griner back here, the U.S. agreed to release Russia arms dealer Victor Boot, who had been serving a 25 year sentence. Now, Victor Boot is a bad guy. He's a very bad guy. And we'll get to that in a second. But think about this. How many people are rotting away in America's jails for ridiculous drug possession charges? Brittany Griner was accused of entering an airport near Moscow in February with a couple of vape cartridges that had less than a gram of cannabis oil in her luggage. Not even weed, just the oil. And that's illegal. And her lawyer said it was prescribed to treat chronic pain and other conditions. Russia didn't care. And they locked her up in a cage for 10 months. So... In the past few weeks, Biden was presented with this choice, bring Brittany Griner home now in exchange for this bad guy or risk leaving her and her fellow American, Paul Whelan, in Russian custody. Because, see, they're also mad that Brittany Griner came home and Paul Whelan didn't. By the way, Brittany Griner is a black woman. Paul Whelan is a white man. So Joe Biden made this very painful decision, in his words, to release a man who was charged with conspiring to kill Americans to get an American's release because we don't leave Americans behind. A U.S. official said that Griner and Boot actually walked past each other on the tarmac at the Abu Dhabi airport on their way to exchanging planes. It was a brutal 10 months for this woman. I mean, she was sentenced to nine years in jail, and she was sent to a penal colony 300 miles outside of Moscow for less than a gram of hash oil. Sherelle Griner, Brittany Griner's wife, thanked the administration. And you've got to see the footage. It was wonderful. We'll play it later on. So now there's a lot of people angry about this decision to release Boot. He's known as the Merchant of Death. They're afraid he's going to return to illegally trafficking weapons and potentially fueling conflicts across the world, especially in Africa. Senate Foreign Relations Chair Bob Menendez said we cannot ignore that releasing Boot back into the world is a deeply disturbing decision. And it is. This guy's 55 years old. He's the most notorious arms dealer of his time. And he's made a lot of money selling a lot of weapons that's killed a lot of people in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. He's a bad guy. He's an arms dealer, you know, like the NRA over here. And we don't know why Russia wouldn't let him go. CIA Director William Burns was at the Aspen Security Forum in July, and they asked why Russia wanted this guy. And he responded, that's a good question, because Victor Boot's a creep. But Republicans are already fundraising off of this, making a big fuss. Kevin McCarthy tweeted, this is a gift of Vladimir Putin and it endangers American lives. Leaving Paul Whelan behind for this is unconscionable. Again, they're mad that the black woman who had weed has come home. Here's Nancy Pelosi earlier today commenting on the exchange of uh, Victor Boot for Brittany Griner, something that Republicans spent the entire day screaming about. Republicans are also criticizing the prisoner swap that was involved, an, a convicted arms dealer with American blood on his hand. They say that that swap only will embolden Vladimir Putin. How do you respond to that? Well, he has served most of his term, is my understanding, majority of his term. Uh, I agree with their characterization of who he is, this bad guy. But the fact is, we wanted Brittany Griner freed, and that's, what it, that's the leverage that we had uh, to do just that. This is a huge victory for Joe Biden. I mean, this is a rare example of diplomacy between the U.S. and Russia. I mean, literally, this war is going on and we are funding Zelensky and Zelensky is beating the crap out of Russia on the battlefield. Russia would not agree for a two for one swap. This was the best deal they could get. Here's Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. He made it clear there was no this or that him or her decision when it came to the release of Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. While we're elated 
At Brittany Returning Home, we continue to work relentlessly to bring Paul Whelan home as well. Despite our efforts, the Russian government has not yet been willing to end his wrongful detention. They continue to insist on sham charges of espionage and are treating Paul's case differently. As a result, Paul and his loved ones continue to suffer needlessly and unjustly. This was not a choice of which American to bring home. The choice was one or none. I wholeheartedly wish that we could have brought Paul home today on the same plane as Brittany, just as at the time I wish we could have brought Brittany and Paul home when we secured the release of Trevor Reed back in April. But we will stay at it. Did you catch that? They brought back U.S. Marine Trevor Reed a few months ago in April because we don't leave people behind, just like they brought back Bo Bergdahl eight years ago because we don't leave people behind, and that's the same reason why we brought back Brittany Griner. Now, obviously, Paul Whelan being kept there is a dark cloud over all of this. And Joe Biden said Russia's handling the case differently for totally illegitimate reasons. The Whelan family is devastated that he's still not out there. But even his brother, David Whelan, said the Biden administration made the right decision to bring Ms. Griner home and to make the deal that was possible rather than waiting for one that wasn't going to happen. That's his own family. Keep that in mind if you should happen to accidentally hit your radio and you wind up on Patriot Channel or Breitbart Channel or that other one, and they're all angry about this, okay? Even Paul Whelan's family understands why this was a good deal, because you don't leave Americans behind if you can. And it's very bad that a bad man got out of jail. But we brought Brittany Griner home. Here's Joe Biden promising the family of Paul Whelan the U.S. will not give up trying to secure his freedom. She wrote to me back in July. She didn't ask for special treatment, even though we've been working on a release from the day one. She requested a simple quote, please don't forget about me and the other American detainees. Please do all you can to bring us home. We never forgot about Brittany. We've not forgotten about Paul Whelan, who's been unjustly detained in Russia for years. This was not a choice of which American to bring home. We brought home Trevor Reed when we had a chance early this year. Sadly, for totally illegitimate reasons, Russia is treating Paul's case differently than Brittany's. And while we have not yet succeeded in securing Paul's release, we are not giving up. We will never give up. We remain in close touch with Paul's family, the Whelan family. And my thoughts and prayers are with them today. They have to have such mixed emotions today. And we'll keep negotiating in good faith for Paul's release. I guarantee that. I say that to the family. I guarantee you. And you know what? I believe him. Donald Trump didn't care about Paul Whelan. Donald Trump wouldn't have cared about any of this. Donald Trump publicly celebrated Brittany Griner being locked up. It didn't bother him at all. Donald Trump Jr. lost his mind today. If you were on Fox, you'll hear them screaming about this woman who hates America. She is a drug addict who hates America. Tommy Lauren. I wonder if Brittany Griner will sing and stand for the national anthem now that the U.S. has compromised national security to free her. You know, if you were offended by athletes genuflecting in deference during the national anthem, the protest racism, but you weren't offended by Trump clowning around during the national anthem before the 2020 Super Bowl, you're part of the racism they were protesting in the first place. Donald Trump Jr. said no one cuts better deals than Biden. We get an awful America-hating WNBA player while Russia gets an international arms dealer. This millionaire at birth, this scrotal clot, Trump Jr., this, this, this knob who kills elephants for fun, complaining that a black American woman has been freed 
from a foreign gulag. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Joe Biden left a Marine stranded behind enemy lines. Okay, Paul Whelan was arrested on more serious charges in 2018. They didn't care. 2018, Whelan was dishonorably discharged for larceny from the Marine Corps. They are using the Marines for cheap political points. No insult to Mr. Whelan. He should be home. But the Marines kicked him out. They are willing to exploit that and the fact that their viewers don't know to try to make Joe Biden look bad. Again, despite Trump being so obsequious to Putin, he couldn't bring Paul Whelan home for two years. So the right is just using Paul Whelan's name to denigrate Brittany Griner, to denigrate Joe Biden, because they don't care about any of these people. I would just want to point out it's still not too late to trade Paul Whelan for Donald Trump. And one final thought about this here. Um, it's remarkable for so many reasons. But think about this. This would have been inconceivable when we were growing up. Think back 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I don't know how old you are. 40 years ago when we were growing up. Let's just see if you remember the 20th century. Every part of this would have sounded like science fiction. Can you imagine the U.S. government would bend over backwards to get a black, gay, married woman released from a Russian prison? A woman who was guilty of a nonviolent cannabis offense from a president in the U.S. who had just decriminalized weed on the federal level. Every part of that sentence would have sounded like science fiction in the 20th century. So it's a good story. It's a great occasion to feel patriotic, to feel hopeful, to feel inspired, because we don't leave people behind. And Paul Whelan will be brought home. And the one good thing about the conservative umbrage, well, the fact is they don't care about Paul Whelan, but Joe Biden really does. And they will stay on his case and he will bring them home and they will not praise him when he does. They'll find some other reason to keep the umbrage machine going. And finally, it may be the most remarkable thing about this. Joe Biden got Brittany Griner back from Russia. I think that's the first time in my life the mainstream media has ever paid attention to a trade for a WNBA player. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. I'm John Fugel saying this is progress after dark. You know, I just want to say this Trump organization fraud is the most shocking example of Trump fraud since the Trump University fraud or the Trump Foundation fraud. And real Americans know it's all an elaborate leftist hoax just to make Trump commit more fraud. 
Thank you. I'm John Fugel saying welcome back to Progress. Professor Corey Brett Schneider is one of our heroes here, and you may have read his stuff in the New York Times, Time Magazine, Politico. He preaches and teaches and enriches the lives of students in the poli department at Brown University. You must own his book, The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. I am telling you, if you care about the country and being smarter than your evil right-wing loved ones, you must own this book. We are thrilled to welcome Professor Corey Brett Schneider back to SiriusXM. Thanks, John. And I love the idea of a poli-sci preacher. That's the first. (laughs) Well, you lay down some logic for me and some truth all the time. And I tend to scream out, testify when you talk. So for me, it's like (laughs) preaching. Um, Professor, it's good to have you. Well, let let, let me let me jump right into it, because, you know, this week we saw a Supreme Court have the oral arguments on whether state legislatures have the power to choose electors that can pretty much just throw out the will of the voters. And it seemed like the court was struggling to find consensus about this this legal theory that could strip state courts ability to review election laws passed by legislatures. What's your take on where things stand with Moore v. Harper? And did I set it up right? Yeah, I think I think that's you know part of the idea. It's a kind of uh, look. I'll, I'll sort of start from the beginning. It's a wacky theory that has lots of implications. And so, one of the things that you're absolutely right to re- reference is the John Eastman idea that says basically, you know, going back to that was the theory of how to overturn the election that that states could basically state legislatures could override the will of the people, claim falsely that there was fraud when there was none, really do whatever they want and throw the votes to their own people. That that was Eastman's theory. That's how he justified the idea that this state legislature theory could justify upending the, the process that we have for, for choosing electors. But it's got a lot of different heads. And so the, the issue in the Moore case that the Supreme Court just heard is still about that idea of basically state legislatures specifically being able to do anything they want. And more specifically here, what they're saying is that a state Supreme Court uh, cannot um, uh, basically limit that legislature, even if they want to engage in extreme power mm-hmm. grab gerrymandering. So there was a state Supreme Court decision that said, um, you know, basically the legislature had agreed, uh, had engaged in a Republican power grab. They can't do that. And the state legislature theory says, well, the state Supreme Court can't overturn us because we're sovereign. We can do whatever we want. So you see the parallel. It's this idea. State legislatures in our government are basically empowered to do anything, including upend the law and including not be subject to uh, the control of federal law or uh, even in this case, a state state Supreme Court. So, So I don't know if that was. That was a little bit choppy. No, no, no. You you nailed it because, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it involves North Carolina's congressional map, because yep. in, in that exactly. case, the state Supreme Court, you know, threw out the maps that the Republican controlled legislature had made up. Right. They called it an illegal partisan gerrymander because it was. Right. And then the court drawn maps were what was used for the election this year. So this is essentially and then tell me that this is the most bizarre part about it. They are going yep. to the court telling the Supreme Court. Right. That courts should have less power. And right. Right. Really, no power. Essentially, in, in that's the case. argument, right? Like, like, yeah. hey, Supreme <laughs> yeah. Court, we want to yeah. we want to make all the courts a lot less supreme. Yeah, it, it is that wacky. And I think when it comes down to it, it's really an assault on the idea that we're a country governed by law, because, you know, the idea 
that the mainstream idea of what our, our country governed by law is, is that we have state constitutions. They allow certain things. They don't allow certain things. The state of North Carolina's Supreme Court has decided you can't engage in these raw partisan gerrymanders. And what, what this argument is saying is, no, the state Supreme Court can't enforce their own constitution because the legislature is supreme, All, you know, beyond really the federal reach and beyond the, the state reach. That, that's the idea. And so yeah. the state Supreme Court can't limit what they, they can do. Any, they are unlimited to do anything they want, including just claim power for Republicans at all costs. And see how absurd that is. Could they announce permanent power for themselves mm-hmm. <laughs> while they're in the legislature? And so if their their power is to do anything they want, maybe they could. And that's essentially what this is about. I mean, when we get rid of all these, you know, terms and, and the details, it's about a state legislature in North Carolina controlled by Republicans that tried to set up permanent power. And even though it was illegal, they wanted to say, well, the Constitution somehow gives us this power. And it is the same theory that we began with, the John Eastman theory that says in our Constitution, state legislatures are supreme. If it sounds like a sort of pre-Civil War idea of states' rights or an anti-civil rights era, you know, early 20th century idea of anti-civil rights, that's what it is. It's an extreme, extreme view of states' rights and specifically legislature's rights. So, Corey, here's the most disturbing phrase that's come out of my mouth this week. You know, (laughs) we're kind of in the golden age of saying things that feel really creepy after we say them out loud. But the phrase I'm wrestling with right now is um, the majority of the conservatives on the Supreme Court, the the majority of the conservative majority on the Supreme Court, because at this point, it's sort of like who's the swing vote within the Republicans? It, it, It seemed that Justices Robert and Barrett and Kavanaugh, along with the three sane judges, um, (laughs) weren't really going to go for this, for this kind of broad ruling that would totally shift power over redistricting and other voting matters from state courts to uh, state legislatures, even if they know that's a rigged game and the legislatures are all Republican. Yeah, I mean, I think, frankly, it's just really hard to tell from oral argument who's going to do what. Uh, except in some cases. So Clarence Thomas, I feel like that's a vote, just as we've always feared, you know, for this crazy view. Uh, I would bet there's a good chance that, that uh, Alito is uh, signed up for it and, and possibly Gorsuch. Now, right, there are these three other justices that we're less clear about. Certainly Roberts, uh, you know, I would think has this deep stake in, in a claim to not being an ideologue to being a, a moderate. I don't know how true that is, but this is such a wacky theory that the idea that um, uh, some of these, I guess we'll call them moderates, they're not moderates in any any normal sense, but in this court, I guess they, they're the sort of middle middle tier, middle three, uh, that, that, yeah, they're, they, uh, there's a, uh, I, I have to believe there's a hope that they will say that this theory is crazy because it claims to be based yeah. in history. It's not. It claims to be based in the rule of law, but that's what we've been talking about. It's incompatible with the idea of law. There's no serious scholarship behind it. And as was pointed out in the oral argument, it would really upend, you know, basically any ability of state courts to undo the will of the legislature as as they wanted. That's that's a wild idea. 
more than that, I mean, this this would this this would also prevent state courts from reviewing any changes to election procedures or extending an election day deadline. The courts would have no control. All control legally would be determined by local politicians, which right. isn't always the best example of a cross section of the population. Now, it seems that there's three different teams on the Supreme Court. Now, tell me if this is wrong. You have three liberal justices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have three conservative justices. That would be John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. Amy Coney Barrett, and then you have three justices who are so right wing they 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 should only speak in German, yeah. uh, and it does really seem the New York Times yeah. said that Kavanaugh, Barrett, and and Roberts seem to be looking for a ruling that would preserve the court's role in the process. I mean, you know, could a court yeah. be so conservative that it allows courts to have their power taken away it, it, by conservatives? It really seems so radical, but so does completely upending the entire law of privacy, the law of gay rights, the law of abortion, and yet we've seen again and again, uh, not to mention the law of affirmative action. So there are a majority of votes to do some pretty wild things. Now, you know, I've got to believe that that they're not all there for here. I will say, you know, I don't think Kavanaugh is a conservative. I think he is just an operative. And to the degree that he cares maybe about saving himself from some future impeachment or from judgment that is going to forever condemn him for what he no, is too late for that too late for that <laughs> i think it's too late but but maybe that's what's motivating him but i i i don't know how, what the the principles that are operating in his well, mind let me, let me rephrase it then kavanaugh's a, yeah. a right-wing hack and and yeah. gorsuch alito and thomas are right-wing monsters how about that yeah. is that a better <laughs> okay, distinction now you're yeah, I was thinking, like, there's something about this conversation that wasn't sitting right, because normally I'm trying to say, well, you could really defend them by saying X, Y, and Z. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there isn't a defense of, of this group. There isn't a coherence. And we really, I wish it was more, you know, than we're just hoping that they're not going batshit crazy. And that's I mean, really what's going on. I mean, no, it was, just, it was just that these are well funded. Do what they did in but so it's many not cases. crazy. It's not crazy. Yeah. It's all well. It's it, there's the well-funded power grab machine that's operating on every level, and they're going to fight right. and fight and fight. I mean, we saw this with the with the with the uh, the, the the don't say gay case. The Supreme Court's hearing this right. week, essentially, where a woman who doesn't even have a website yet uh, wants to be able to turn down gay customers for their weddings once she does have a website because it goes against her Christian faith. And this is already before the Supreme Court. Lady doesn't even have a grievance. Like the Federalist yeah, Society is just where there is the Federalist Society. They're they're hiring the judges and they're hiring the cases at the same time. Yeah, and there's an agenda. I mean, you know, they'd find the cases. They have thousands they can pick from when they grant cert. And you have Alito really in the lead of wanting to get this extreme idea of religious freedom that's going to usurp gay rights. And he's going to make it happen. Now, in this case, Thomas feels the same way about his state legislature's theory, unfortunately. But I just have to believe it's so out there. Um, uh, and really such a threat, not not to to civil liberties, which this court right. doesn't care about anymore, but to right. democracy itself and to the principles that I, I do like the phrase conservative, that conservatives care about, in particular the rule of law, but they can't do it. I do want to just come back to the very beginning that you started with. You know, if this crazy court does go in the direction of saying that this state legislature's theory prevails here and that the state Supreme Court can't strike down this blatant uh, partisan gerrymander, that is a vindication of John Eastman's argument. That's the real danger, that next time, you know, there's a coup attempt (laughs) with the theory that John Eastman's given us, that maybe the Supreme Court would have precedent for it. 
And there's one other thing that I guess I don't want to lose, which is as crazy as it is, and I, I don't think we've understated it at all how, how upsetting and wild and, and nuts this state legislature's theory is, it does have a place in the law, and that's in Bush versus Gore, which hmm. you know was, to my <laughs> mind, Kavanaugh. a raw partisan, uh, partisan grab. Yes, Kavanaugh worked on that case, and Rehnquist and Scalia said in that case, it wasn't the majority decision, but it was certainly a prominent part of what happened, that it is up to state legislatures to state, um, you know, what they want to do with Florida's electoral votes. And the idea that the Florida Supreme Court came and intervened over the power of state legislatures was a usurpation of their fundamental power. It is the state legislature theory. So Bush v. Gore gave this thing life. And exactly as you said, that's my punchline. (laughs) Kavanaugh worked on that. That's my fear that he'll see that connection and and really do the crazy thing. Corey, um, Justice Elena Kagan said this is a proposal that gets rid of the normal checks and balances on the way Mm. big governmental decisions are made in this country. Mm. And then you might think that it gets rid of all those checks and balances at exactly the time when they are needed most. So speaking of checks and balances, let's talk about Donald Trump, who posted (laughs) on uh, Truth Social this week. With the revelation of massive and widespread fraud and deception in working closely with big tech companies, the DNC and the Democrat Party, there's no party called the Democrat and there was no revelation of any widespread fraud and deception. And the only governmental entity in touch with Twitter was Trump's White House. But he says, uh, do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner or do you have a new election? Now, here it is. A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Professor Corey Brechneider, is it personally, spiritually and professionally degrading to you as a man to have to comment on Donald Trump's (laughs) desire to terminate the Constitution? And he came out and said he never called for that. And he literally uses the phrase termination. I guess, I mean, all you could do is go back to the beginning. You know, I think when you and I met, you retweeted my political piece, Trump versus the Constitution, which, believe it or not, was causing controversy because Trump was a normal Republican, fine, be against him. But how could anybody think this is fundamentally about overturning constitutional democracy? I think, uh, you know, the, the sort of... Uh, idea of tyrannophobia was around at that time that mm-hmm. people like me were exaggerating the threat that you know this was just a normal republican and and stop with all the hyperbole now he has come out and said finally that he is against the constitution really trump versus the constitution i think that should have been the title of of my book <laughs> it is it is where we are and you know what the story that really relates to it is from germany where there was an attempted violent coup. That's what we're dealing with, an enemy of democracy. That's what the German uh, chancellor, that's the German people are saying right now, that th- these are enemies of democracy, and that's how we have to talk about Trump as well. And that's it. I mean, and every Republican has to either own those comments or condemn them. It's really simple. Right. Um, really quick, in our final minutes, Donald Trump's request for outside supervision of the Justice Department's investigation into the documents he stole came to an end today when he f- decided not to challenge an appeals court which rejected the oversight of course we're talking about the special master uh, a government entity that has created thousands of snm jokes in my mind um so uh, the, the, only, the only thing surprising about here is that donald trump didn't appeal it 
I'm trying to come up with the right line that he, he used a safe word or something like that. Is that <laughs> yes. the, the He's acting like a total submissive here. I don't understand. <laughs> he, you know, I think it's the same story, really, that uh, this call to upend the Constitution, to get rid of it, is a realization that the courts are not going to save him. So what's his response going to be? It's not going to be to say, oh, I guess I lost. That would be a normal person, normal candidate, normal president's response. Instead, it's to say, let's get rid of this whole thing because the courts say the Constitution's against me. I'm against the Constitution. So to my mind, it's it really is the same story as the I hate the Constitution statement right. by, by Trump. Completely. So what this means, I think, now that now that he didn't challenge it and now that the special master chapter of this weird little tale is done, there's it, it seems like now the DOJ probe into Donald Trump illegally taking these documents from the National Archives. Again, our our library was robbed by an illiterate. Um, this is theft of government records. All of this. This can now move forward without any kind of restrictions on prosecutors and investigators use of all the records the FBI got. Right. And that's really where we should have been in the very beginning. This is a normal process that the Department of Justice engages in. And this Trump elected judge, I mean, really, was <laughs> Aileen Cannon, she, what had, he she had her moment. He had her moment. She's been rebuked. And uh, thankfully, it's over. It was just a big time delay and a waste of time. Of course, that's that's Trump's strategy is that he loves time delay. And uh, and yep. uh, finally, hopefully, the, the, the delay is over and the chickens are coming home to roost. Every time delay is a chance to squeeze another nickel out of the rubes. Professor Corey Brechneider, it is such an honor to have you with us every week. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work and expertise? Uh, you could buy my book, uh, The Oath in the Office. A buy guide it, people. To the buy it. For future presidents. And it, I will tell you, it was originally called Trump versus the Constitution. <laughs> it's a great book. Thank you so much for joining us, Corey. Hope you have a great weekend. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. So in the 1950s, life expectancy in the U.S. was in the top five or ten healthiest countries in the world. And then, somehow, other countries began surpassing us. By 1970, we were 17th. By the early 90s, we had dropped to number 22nd. And more recent data has us ranked around 44th in the world in life expectancy. Did the quality of our medicine decline, or is it something else? As of this last September, the net worth of our richest 1%, even after inflation, is some 527% above the net worth of our richest 1% in 1976. The income stats are the same story. Incomes in the bottom 50% now after inflation are under a meager 30% higher than they were back in 1976. The American top 0.01% incomes have gone up almost 600%. It's not just about the income inequality. It's about the dramatically uneven income growth over decades. That's why I'm so happy to have Stephen Bezruchka join us. He is uh, the Associate Teaching Professor Emeritus in the Departments of Health Systems and Population Health and of Global Health at the School of Public Health, University of Washington. He serves on the board of the Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. Uh, their parent organization has shared two Nobel Peace Prizes. And his astonishing new book, well, it's all about how the U.S. leads the world in reported COVID-19 deaths. And the reasons, well, are our distrust of government, our concerns about civil liberties, and 
basic lack of caring for each other. The book is called Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. It goes deep into the global health data and it takes it draws upon his years of experience as an emergency physician around the world to expose how unjust economics is killing us. It is a great pleasure to welcome you, Dr. Bezrichka. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much, uh, John, for having me. And that was really a great summary of the of the book. <laughs> you know, well, just a thank, you. thank you. Thank you. I mean, it, it it's really amazing. I made a film for PBS about inequality in America, and it's amazing how every society has it. But it's to me, it's grown worse and worse over the decades. And your book really is about how this inequality that we talk about on an economic level is actually terrible for the public health and and even the smallest of policy changes like parental leave can make a huge impact not just on the long-term health of an individual but on the long-term long-term health of a society yes so uh rather than focusing on the health of the public what i try to argue in the book is that it affects you and me and your children and our parents that is none of us can enjoy the health that we could if inequality of of the extent that you described wasn't there as an example and and i try to make that argument in the in the book that it affects all of us Mm -hmm. Uh, just to take one example the oldest if we were so healthy we would expect to have the oldest old person alive at any one time within our shores that doesn't happen so uh, whether you're uh, no matter what your age uh, you don't live as long as you could if there was much less inequality just think of uh, the notable people you can talk about, you just mentioned John Lennon, uh, mm-hmm. but Marilyn and Elvis and Steve, they all died before reaching age 60. Yes. That shouldn't be. It's very true. And we have been dying in recent decades at much higher rates than people who live in other Western democracies with capitalism. And we keep seeing societies that all spend so much less on medical care than we do here in the States. And yet they all have longer life expectancies. So we assume that it's health care that produces health. And that even uh, pollutes our language. We speak of accessing health, ensuring health, paying for health, getting health, when all those are about health care. So one of the first things I do with my students is anytime you say the word health, ask yourself if you're really talking about health care. So we need to ask ourselves, how much does health care do to improve health? And in the book, I lay out some startling facts. You know, I worked as a doctor clinically for 35 years. When people of my profession go on strike, guess what happens? Who's most upset when doctors go on strike? I mean, this is absolutely crazy, but morticians have less work to do. This has been studied over and over again. And... uh, Not true when nurses go on strike. We don't have as many studies of those, but one study in New York State showed that uh, uh, mortality goes up when nurses go on strike, but not us doctors. Fascinating. You know, you you really nail it 
in the book when you talk about the psychosocial stress, that's the term you use, the psychosocial stress that people who live in deeply unequal societies inevitably feel. I mean, people in cultures who just barely have enough resources to provide for basic needs, we've seen poor countries where that's not a problem. And you write movingly of your time living in Nepal. But as you point out, the wider the gap between the haves and have-nots in a society, it's almost like the more pressure there is to compete for higher status, the more sick it makes people. That's right. So we live in a very highly stressed society. Uh, you know, I coined the term Health Olympics um, about 20 some odd years ago, the ranking of countries by length of life. You know, if health were an Olympic event, uh, as you talked about earlier, uh, we wouldn't be there for the final day's race. The, the event mm. being how long we live, we would have been disqualified in the trials. On the other hand, if you measure stress in countries around the world, we're up there in the top five countries ranked by the amount of stress that people feel. Now, that's, uh, you know, stress is a much more subjective or soft measure, whereas uh, the reason I focus on life expectancy or mortality measures is that in rich countries and in many other countries, we know when someone's born and we know the age when they die, and that allows us to compute many mortality statistics and make these rankings. But Americans really have an enormous amount of stress, and that has increased in the last few years, both with COVID, the mm -hmm. increasing addiction to social media, the fact that we're alone together, we don't see each other and support one another again. All yes. this creates more stress and frustration, and we act out this stress. Well, you know, our homicide rates uh, uh, for the last couple of years have been the highest they've been uh, for many, many decades. Why is that? Well, no studies really link homicide rates to measures of inequality. Take, for example, the U.S. states and Take some measure of income inequality and then look at the homicide rates and the highest rates are in the states with the biggest gap between the rich and That's the poor. It. That's it. And these, this preventable poverty leads to preventable crimes. Doctor, how, how does stress that we're talking about, how does it change us? Physiolo physiolo physiologically, I'm sorry, the, the wear and tear of just getting through chronic daily stress. What does that do to our bodies year after year, decade after decade? So there's a concept called allostatic load. Uh, the less stress we have, uh, the difference in our physiology. That is, uh, we if we're, you know, if uh, suddenly the building you're in started shaking or here in Seattle, the big earthquake was coming, you know, my pulse would go up and my heart would be uh, pushing uh, blood to the muscles that are going to save my life. And uh, suppose I, you know, I, where I'm sitting now, we did have an earthquake in 1980 and this, uh, uh, this building shook. And so I mounted that stress response, ran outside because uh, earthquakes don't kill people. It's collapsing buildings. <laughs> and then... When uh, when it was clear the shaking had, had subsided, uh, my heart rate went down, My uh, I had been sweating, my pupils had dilated, all those things returned more to baseline. 
So that, you know, that kind of a stress response saves your life. Mm. But if you're stressed all the time, um, for example, uh, you know, you're, wor- you're worried about your significant other coming home and beating you. You're worried right. about uh, whether you're going to have a job tomorrow. Uh, you've been driving along in your car and some big two garage car cuts you off. All of those are stresses we uh, we face on a daily basis and coping with them doesn't save our lives. What it does is produce wear and tear on our bodies and eventually uh, we succumb and, and die. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we we don't so I, I call stress the twenty first century tobacco. Amen. That is not many people smoke in the United States anymore, and our stress has overtaken smoking as the major problem that we need to face and cope with. And our standing in the in the stress Olympics is an indicator of that. And so it's also so decrease, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. So how do we decrease stress in society? Well, if the gap between the rich and the poor makes us act out in bizarre ways that harm ourselves and others, let's reduce the gap between the rich and the poor. How do we do that? Well, uh, we do live in a democracy and we have political choices to tax the wealthy. Back in, 19, in the early 1950s, when we were one of the healthiest countries in the world, the highest marginal tax rate was 91%. That is, if you were rich and you made an extra dollar, 91 cents went to the government. Yeah. And they spent that on social programs That's right. to make us healthier. Today, uh, the richest 1% or the richest 0.01% they pay less tax overall than you or I. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not fair. So we could bring back the high tax rates we had in the 1950s when we were one of the healthiest countries. And uh, and that would, just that political policy would improve our health. We have studies showing that very well. Uh, you know, Japan's the longest lived country in the world, despite having three times as many men smoking per capita as in the United States. Well, after the Second World War, we occupied Japan and we made them bring down their record income gap to and even legislated a maximum wage in Japan. So uh, we put in place policies there that made their health improvements the fastest ever seen on the planet. We could take the same medicine ourselves. I completely agree, and I also want to point out you you do mention that when people are dealing with this stress, um, they they tend to turn to whatever coping mechanisms they have, be it alcohol or drugs or high fat, high sugar comfort food, which generally keeps on making it worse. And yet, we we don't seem to be able to have the same control over society that we did with cigarettes. It took a very long time, but that public health crisis went away, or at least was dramatically diminished because we, the people, took action and policies were formed. And if if policies get us into this mess, it seems like you're saying that it's possible to have policies that get us out. But you point out 
in the book that a lot of people who are not billionaires are socialized to go along with a billionaire first agenda. And I, I'd like to ask you to share this allegory you give about the billionaire and the chauffeur who pull up yeah. to a homeless family on the side of the road. So, uh, you know, the, the story, and, and it's not mine. I got it from uh, Arlie Hochschild at uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, you know, a, a chauffeur is driving a car for his billionaire that uh, uh, sits in the back seat. And the billionaire spots a woman and her uh, a homeless woman and two children on the sidewalk uh, eating a loaf of bread. And uh, the billionaire says to the chauffeur, stop the car. Mm -hmm. Chauffeur stops the car. The billionaire gets out, goes over to the woman and grabs the loaf of bread from her and gets back in the car and tells the chauffeur to drive on. The people watching on the street are you know, I can't believe what they just saw. And the chauffeur, he he's perplexed. He's in a moral dilemma. Yeah. But he wants yep. to keep his job, so he drives on. That's and, it. And so we, the people, are like the chauffeur in the car. We facilitate the billionaire getting richer by taking from those who have less. It's a parable for American society today. We are both the billionaire and the crowd on the street that can't believe what they've seen, but yeah. we carry on nevertheless. And you, you phrase it beautifully. You talk about how this sort of private moral deal between the billionaire and the chauffeur uh, has left the world meaner, but solves an emotional problem for some people who, given the way their own lives are being squeezed, find themselves with less empathy left over for others outside their social circle. And and that's the surest sign of how effective this this monstrous system is, Doctor. I mean, you, you point out how the, the, the poorest in society, the most marginalized, they don't complain of deep equality either. They're too busy focused on just getting through the day. That's right. That's one of the tough things in trying to work to change society. You know, the, well... Poverty is a policy choice. That is, we could have a uh, a guaranteed income. We could raise the minimum wage, which has been stagnant for a couple of decades. Um, and so if you recognize that we have the most poverty of all rich countries because of political choices, then we have something to do about that. But convincing a poor person that uh, inequality is what the problem is when they say, well, I'm, I'm down on my luck or I have a cash flow problem or I'm temporarily unemployed. They blame themselves for being poor. And that's the problem that's right. in our meritocracy. If you're poor, it's your own damn fault. And so, you know, do something, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But the poor don't have any bootstraps and the poor we can say they number in some way half of American society. We have the rich, the one percent. We have mm -hmm. we have the poor, and we have the middle class, which is vastly shrinking, and that's killing us. Indeed, Doctor, you have a a piece this week um, in Salon that I recommend very highly, which is called I want to get the title correct. Inequality is literally killing us. The most unequal societies suffer most in public health metrics. And you lay it out very simply and beautifully. You, you write, richer people have better health as measured by mortality rates than poorer people. However, 
Adding an additional $10,000, say, to the income of a very rich person does little or nothing to improve their health, while adding that amount to a poor person's income has substantial health benefits. Such a relationship is observed in neither all societies. It seems, doctor, that the greatest challenge here is to get the empathy high enough that enough Americans acknowledge this truth and want to do something about it on a policy level. Yes. And so um, the last chapter in the book, What Are You Going to Do?, uh, is really a synthesis of both what I've done teaching, of what I've seen others do. And uh, it really are steps for what to do as an individual. To begin with, don't just be one person, work with others. Yes. What, you know, work within your organizations. If you have power in some realm, you know, as a, uh, as a teacher, I can set test questions. And if it's on the test, then students will study. Uh, I, you mentioned I'm, I'm on the board of Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. And we have an economic and equity health task force. And we have regular meetings. We uh, do political demonstrations. Uh, we had a, we've had a number of sessions on the unhoused people uh, in, in Washington state. And, and so there are many things that we can do. Um, and the main thing, you know, the African proverb, if you want to go uh, fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. That's so it. we need to work together to, first of all, create awareness that our health, yours and mine, is damaged by the inequality that we seem to almost treasure in society and that that needs to change. Dr. Bezruchka, one of the most moving parts of your book, Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World, is that you interlace the story um, of what's happened to us economically and, and, and health-wise with your own life story. And you write very movingly about your time in Nepal, where you lived in very remote areas with people who had only the basic material goods to survive. It seems, Doctor, that this experience really informed you as a person and you as a physician for the rest of your career. Um, and yes, it was, it was incredibly important. Now, this was the early, this was the mid-1970s. So after medical school, I uh, set up a community health project, a week's walk from the road. So, you know, I lived in this remote community. Um, there was no electricity, running water, uh, anything like that. And people worked hard farming and foraging and, uh, and herding, and they had enough to eat and they had nothing else, uh, basically. They didn't, because we didn't have modern uh, means of communication, they didn't know what others had. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had my camera, uh, that was more wealth than uh, anybody else had, but I, I sort of didn't parade it around. Um, and so I came to realize that if you don't know what others have, it's much less stressful and such a society actually as an example today nepal has better mortality outcomes than yep. india yep. and and why is that well uh first of all nepal was never colonized and colonization is a very destructive uh uh trip on on a country 
And we're recognizing that today with neocolonialism. But India was colonized and they could, and everybody knew what the British had that they did not. Mm-hmm. And so that really made a difference in, I think, why Nepal now, <laughs> uh, still quite a poorer country, is healthier than India, which is much richer. That is, it That's has it. many more. Well, That's it. It has billionaires, and uh, but it has the legacy of British colonialism. But but you you nailed it. Both societies have poverty, but India has much more tremendous income inequality. I mean, you you write, these Nepalese did not know what they didn't have. Their moral compass directed them to share. It seems like empathy is just going to be the cure for all of this. And it seems like not just all the world's great religions, but economic data tells us the same message. Yes. Um, So what, I mean, why would, why would you want to believe that inequality kills us? Well, um, you have to sort of look at maybe 500 studies, uh, research studies that link various measures of inequality to, uh, to health outcomes. And mm-hmm. to say that inequality causes worse health, you have to explore what does it mean to say something causes some, something else. So I try to lay out the, uh, the reasons that we can accept that using the same arguments that the Surgeon General made in 1964 on the report on smoking and health. Back then, we thought smoking was was good for you. That's what the tobacco companies told us. And Mm -hmm. we doctors prescribed cigarettes to help people calm their nerves. But then the smoking and health Surgeon General's report came out. It took another couple of decades before people realized that secondhand smoke was as harm, almost as harmful as as you're inhaling uh, the cigarette, and that is when laws started uh, being passed to limit smoking in restaurants, airplanes. You know, I remember in the seventies. You know, airplanes were just full of tobacco smoke. I remember. I remember it. Yeah, movie theaters yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Doctor, uh, uh, let me ask you then, what is it that's giving you hope right now? You you talk about how social movements begin with, as you put it, people working on critical, timely issues as individuals and then together with others. What are you seeing right now that's inspiring you and, and giving you hope? Well, I think that Americans or people around the world in general recognize that there's something about the way the world is organized that isn't working. That is, uh, we've created a system that creates so much wealth for a few, and uh, and this is the, the system is very clear. It's called capitalism. So the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and that's the way the system is built. Well, you know, the fact that we have that, well, back in the 1970s or 60s, socialism was a four-letter word. Mm-hmm. Now uh, we have people in Congress that call themselves socialists. We have uh, we're recognizing that uh, we have democracy in the, in our political process, but we need democracy in the workplace. That sort of speaks of socialism. That is, uh, it's now you know that there are programs out there, more discussions, even what you talk about. 
that really begin to ask, you know, is democ- is capitalism serving us? And yeah. every economic system has a beginning, uh, a life, and then it sort of uh, fades away. Remember, we were a feudal society of for course. many thousands of years, and then capitalism came along and replaced feudalism. Some people w- would say we're in a neo-feudal society when a mm-hmm. few very rich people uh, have all the power and and we are the serfs. Um, whatever you want to call it, I think capitalism, we will see massive changes and its replacement by something else by the end of this century. Well, you certainly do lay out how COVID-19 certainly revealed that this inequality in our country hurts all of us, not just the most marginalized. And this book is really about using that tragedy as a, an opportunity to make incredible change. This book is so passionate and yet so full of empathy. It is a really, really wonderful thing you've given us. Dr. Stephen Bezrushka, the book is Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. It is such an honor to talk to you. I loved your book. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, John. I I appreciated uh, our discussion. Thank you, sir. We will be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. I'm John Fugelsang. This is SiriusXM Progress. We are at 866-997-4748. 866-997. Great. We want to get to your calls right away, but I want to just uh, say something really quick. I, this is sort of like an open letter to the media. And I, I try to say this every year around the 8th of December. And I'm, I'm not a journalist, but, uh, you know, we, we're, we always talk a lot about John Lennon in the fall. October 9th is always his birthday. He would have just been 82. And this day, the 8th of December, it marks the 42nd anniversary of his murder. So every fall, you hear a lot about these two anniversaries, the one in October, the one in December. We hear a lot about John and Yoko and what people remember. But in the media, we generally hear a lot about his assassin, who has had media attention lavished on him for decades. And he comes up for parole every couple of years. But Honestly, I'd like to make a request, and I make it every year to people in the media. Can you can you can you stop can you stop saying the killer's name? Hmm. I, you know, and I'll never ask you guys to do anything. You guys are the audience, and I I, I love everyone listens to this channel. But if if you think of it, maybe maybe try yourself to to stop saying the killer's name. I first learned this when I was a teenager. Um, that guy killed John because he wanted fame. That guy with the three names, he wanted to have his name next to John Lennon's in the history books, which means that every time we repeat his way too famous three named name, we're actually rewarding him. He is still incarcerated at Attica State Prison, and he seems to love giving interviews to the media. He went on Larry King just to talk about himself. He's in his 60s now. He's over 20 years older than John Lennon ever got to be. And this man who does not deserve the death penalty, does deserve to be forgotten. Completely forgotten, deliberately forgotten. He deserves to have his name lost in obscurity. And I know that's a lot to ask. I mean, most presidential assassins aren't easily forgotten. We remember the names of most presidential assassins, except for the guy who shot McKinley because he had an impossible name to pronounce. 
Leon Shizhelgog. I, I still can't say it. <clears throat> but even that guy who killed McKinley, he didn't do it for the fame. And you, you can still talk about him. Please, just, just don't say his name. Now, fundamentalist Beatle fans have said this, haven't said his name for years. I, when I was a teenager and discovered Beatle Fan Magazine, I knew this was part of the culture. People call him the assassin. They call him John's killer. They know enough to deny this man the eminence he wished for. And again, if that's not enough, consider this, right? We are in a, a nation of fame junkies. The the era, or should I say the century of reality TV, has proven people will do anything to be celebrities. People will make sex tapes with Ray J to be celebrities. For many years, people would go on a reality show and pretend they respected Donald Trump to be celebrities. Guys, every time you say the killer's name, we send a message to aspiring lunatics that you can be famous forever. Your name can go down in history. You can have an impact if you kill the right person. Fame's a dirty business. Lincoln was killed by one of the most famous actors in America. And after the murder, thousands of Americans burned their autographs of John Wilkes Booth in disgust. John Wilkes Booth's own friends burned most of the, his letters because they were afraid of being tied to him. Now, the perverse consequence of that is that today, a John Wilkes Booth autograph is so rare, it's worth so much more than a Lincoln autograph. But most of us wouldn't want to own a Booth autograph because most of us don't want to honor murderers. So go ahead and talk about the guy all you want. Please, just don't say his name. Paul McCartney called him the jerk of all jerks. Um, he wrote a poem called that. I, I, I recommend something a bit more pointed. That douchebag. You know, just, just say that douchebag. If we could turn on the news every year at this time and hear that douchebag who killed John Lennon was denied parole again this week, I'm sure we'd be a proud and happy nation. And if you're feeling compassion for that guy in jail, just feel free to call him that lost, confused, disturbed, emotionally tormented douchebag who liked Catcher in the Rye a little too much. Just don't say his name. I know it's asking a lot. But if people besides the hardcore Beatle fans start thinking this way, it could make a small but meaningful difference. You may say I'm a dreamer to want this killer to fade into oblivion, but I'm not the only one. We want to know your thoughts. We are at 866-997-4748. We're talking about Brittany Griner. We're talking about Trump's very bad week. And of course, we're asking you to share your favorite John Lennon song, your favorite John Lennon album favorite Beatles or solo work, and, of course, uh, your favorite John Lennon story. 866-997-GRIT. Let's go to the phones, shall we? Jack on Long Island, thank you for your patience on hold. Welcome. Hey, John, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good, I'm all right. I'm just calling because I'm a huge Beatles fan. I have a uh, Beatles Twitter account called Beatles Earth, actually, and um, Beatles podcast called Here, There, and Everywhere. Oh, wow. And, nice, uh, really man, cool. And, man, I just love John Lennon. Yeah, me too. I, I. By the way, I, I, I follow Beatles Earth. You have a great account. I, I love him too. Oh, thank I, I've you very been. Much. I, I was way too young to ever get to meet him, and he, he never did a tour. But I, I've had the honor of interviewing Yoko on TV, and um, both uh, of his sons, Sean and Julian, have done this show multiple times. And um, it's always amazing to meet people who knew him and uh, and to hear stories about him. And for me, it's just. You know, the music holds up. The solo stuff and his uh, Beatles stuff just still is uh, is so powerful. Every year, I, I never forget this day. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, I'm only 25, so I wasn't old enough to remember a world with John in it. But 
Yeah. His music just means so much to me, and I what, identify what, what, with him. What songs? What, 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 are the, what are the songs that really speak to you? Uh, as someone, as someone who's young, I, I don't, I don't mean a lot of people under thirty who are this into it. So, like, what, what are, what are some of the, the stuff that really speaks to you? Uh, it, today, it's watching the wheels. Um, yeah, especially you know his Christmas song, uh, "Happy Christmas War Is Over." I mean, yeah. these are just messages that are timeless and that are more important now than ever. Um, and yeah. and for someone of, as part of this generation, it's it's. It, it's tough to mourn a loss of a voice that it does not appear in every generation. So for me, John was that voice of yeah. that generation end of this one, but unfortunately yeah. he's not here anymore. So I would, you know, we're all waiting for someone to come along with that message in music now. Yeah. I mean, he, he certainly, you know, what I loved about him was that he wasn't just one kind of artist. He wrote love songs and he wrote dance songs and he wrote angry songs. And he was a guy who, you know, also grew up in public in ways we've never seen. He talked a lot about how he had been terrible to women when he was younger and he, he was a violent person. And he said he grew to regret his violence and want to change it. Uh, he was so ahead yeah. of his time in so many ways. And I, I do think if he was alive, he'd be a lot like Neil Young. I think he'd be doing alternately very beautiful music and then very loud music. I think he would do acts of acts of uh, activism and, and using his music for political causes. And I also think he would surprise us by doing stuff that was, you know, incredibly commercial and lovable. And then he'd turn around and be, you know, very uh, alienating to the right people. I think so, too. I think one of the best things about John was his uh, adventure in music genres and also his humor, too. I mean, I think he would have yeah. gone on to do m many more movies. And just if you listen to his last radio interview from 1980 mm -hmm. um yeah. he was so optimistic going into that decade and just so um looking forward to bringing about positive change yeah. in the way men and women spoke about each other and interacted in relationships that's what double fantasy was all about and that's right yeah it's just today it's um especially for new yorkers and beatles fans across the world it's it's a, it's a tough day, but I'm I'm hoping that we can all, uh, you know, remember the good things about John instead of, um, yeah. Right on. Yeah. You know, I, celebrate rather than mourn. I couldn't say it any better, Jack. It's really a pleasure to have you call. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, John. Call anytime. I appreciate it. it.